All right, guys, as promised, this is a very special edition of Pilates 101, and I am delighted to introduce our special guest for this month's episode, Jonathan Grubb. Uh, Jonathan will be uh, joining us from the Isle of Man, and he's got a fascinating uh, story, history, and link uh, directly back to Joseph Pilates. Um, he's a super guy friend of us here at APPI, and we always love hanging out with him. So, Jonathan, uh, welcome to Pilates 101. It's a delight to have you here. Hi, Glenn. It's lovely to be on the show, and thanks for having me on Pilates 101. It's a pleasure. Uh, yes, it's great to have you, and I'm, I'm super excited. What a topic we have to discuss today. I think, you know, for me anyway, um, all of us in the Pilates industry, we owe so much back to the origins of, of this method, don't we? And, and we're all out there doing our thing. And sometimes maybe we need to take a little bit more time to reflect on where this has all come from. Absolutely. I think that's really important. Whether you're into the history or not, it's good to understand where it came from, how it developed. And even for the physiotherapists that perhaps are not so much into the history, it kind of still comes from that same area, area, era when physiotherapy was developing the First World War, when there was horrendous injuries, people coming back from the, the front and the tr people trying to deal with these injuries and help people recover. So I think physiotherapy kind of developed remarkably in that era too. And Joseph Plates not medically qualified, but had a great intuition in, in how the body moved and how the body worked. And, and he developed his method based on his background through gymnastics. And it's just just fascinating how it all pieces together as well with, with others that were involved in health and fitness from that era or from just before that era. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I've got to think, I think whatever you know, era or era, shall we say, or area of Pilates you come from, it's important to understand that we're all here because of, you know, the greatness and the insight of, of a man that brought his thinking to us many, many years ago. Um, and, you know, I think innovation is, is enormous. And he was an innovator and an inventor, um, wasn't he? So, yeah, we can uh, certainly take, I think it's important to, recognize whatever it is you're doing today there's a foundation to where this has come from there is absolutely and yeah he wasn't the first to develop apparatus you know i've been researching other people his era and, and before um so he's not unique in what he did but there's other people i've researched whose names are kind of long forgotten but his is still out there people do the pilates method they don't do the Muller method or the Sandow method. You know, their names will probably come up to further on in the conversation. But yeah. these other people who had their own systems of exercise, developed their own equipment, they're kind of long forgotten. But Joseph Pilates, his system has um, kind of gone on and people still remember him and they still do his method. So his has survived because of its kind of, greatness really and and yeah. his foresight and intuition in in developing the method as he did yeah all right well let's let's 
touch on that because uh, you know you, you you've given us an insight a little bit there into <clears throat> why we've asked you on to the the program here as well um, for those of you that aren't aware of Jonathan Jonathan has done an enormous amount of research into the history of Pilates and obviously being on the Isle of Man it uh, has a, a unique link and history to Joseph's time there um, but Jonathan why don't we just before we get too much on to, to the the story and the history and, and all of that. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and sort of your background and how you came into Pilates? Yeah, so I was actually born in England, Southport, just north of Liverpool. Came here when I was two. My family came over to live here, brought up on the Isle of Man. It's a beautiful island, small island, but just very scenic and beautiful. As a lad, it was soccer for me. Sort of that was the only sport I was interested in, really. Uh, later on, I got into cricket and the martial arts. But, you know, growing up, I was typical lad, typical bloke, just, just playing team sports. And then about 28, I got an anterior cruciate ligament injury that put me out for a year. And when I started playing again, it kind of wasn't right. There's that instability in my knee and... Just been an amateur footballer, kind of your life, work and everything else kind of more important than just playing football. So I got to a point where I decided that's enough. I'd rather be able to still play some cricket, play tennis, occasionally a bit of golf and get out for walks than end up my knee going again and being a total wreck. So, yeah, I just carried on with the other sports I did, started going to the gym. So didn't really know anything or didn't know anything about Pilates sort of when I was younger. And then sort of in my, yeah, late 40s, uh, my knee kind of gave way sort of underneath me as I was walking down a hill. And my wife, also had a knee injury, a displaced kneecap, which she'd had for many years, about 10 years, which hadn't been diagnosed. She was in a lot of pain. And it was actually my wife, Carol, who said, let's sign on for this Pilates class, uh, an adult recreation class, evening class. So, yeah, I thought I'll give it a go. Probably like a lot of guys that end up doing Pilates, it's probably because their wives brought them to Pilates. So I'm no different. And we start this class with a lady called Mo Shering that you'll know who has trained with APPI and is uh, well known on the Isle of Man. She actually was the first person to teach Pilates on the Isle of Man after Joseph Pilates left. So 80 years, I think it was pretty much exactly after Joseph Pilates left, Mo brought Pilates back to the Isle of Man. So we just fell in love with the method straight away. We just found, you know, it helped our knees, it helped our general fitness, our health. And gradually, as we'd done a few weeks of this course, um, we had a little break at half term, school half terms. And Mo asked us to come along to her house to try the apparatus. So that was our first encounter with the reformer. Uh, we absolutely loved that. Started doing one-to-ones with Mo on the apparatus, carried on with our mat classes, and pretty much the, the rest is history. We've just been doing it ever since. 
We were both fortunate to do the APPI training uh, 2017, I think it was, 2018. Yeah. We did the six-month comprehensive course. I think it was possibly only the second time you'd, you'd run that. Yeah. You'd not long started it. Yeah. Yeah. We remember speaking to you at one of the APPI conferences and you said you were starting this comprehensive course so we were really keen to do that and then got that opportunity so i've done my comprehensive map work with appi and i've started teaching as well now for four or five years so that's going really great and just it's been just an amazing journey really discovering pilates just going to conferences Germany, Spain, London for APPI, meeting so many different teachers from so many different backgrounds. And coming from the Isle of Man, we just kind of feel really blessed that this from this small island, we've been able to experience so much Pilates with so many different teachers and to be able to train with APPI as well. It's just been a fantastic journey. Yeah, well, good for you, I must say. And again, just hearing you talk, Jonathan, it... It does remind me and is a good message, I think, to all of the listeners out there. You really have travelled wide and far to get as much education as you can, haven't you? You haven't pigeonholed yourself just to one training school. You know, we're delighted that you've trained with us. But you are a great example of a thirst for learning the method and learning from as many different people as you can. And, and, and you've taken that passion to so many countries around the world, all from a, a learning point of view for you? I think that's really important to experience the different ways of teaching. The, you know, we've got the classical, so-called classical, we've got so-called contemporary. Some people say there's no such thing as classical or contemporary. There's just Pilates and just the different way of teaching it. So yeah, through lockdown, we got to know a teacher out in California who trained with Romana Krizanowska, one of Joseph's kind of original students, very much classical. And it really just kind of opened our eyes a little bit more to the classical method of teaching. And um, we could compare that with APPI's method where it's more broken down. So it's just getting that real all round background and it really helps I think my teaching technique, knowing all this and having all this experience, it does give you a better grounding for sure in, in the method and what the method is. It's not just repeating a certain series of exercise. There is a method to it and it's just been a fantastic journey for me. And I'm just delighted to just be sharing it uh, for me, it's not about the income, it's about the outcome and just bringing the method to people and letting them experience it and, and bringing that positive input into their lives. Wow, that's brilliant. You've got to, you've got to put a, a trademark or something on that statement you've just said there. It's not about the income, but the outcome. I love that. That's a great outlook because, you know, I mean, in a way, that's why we started the uh, the conference we did, the One Goal, One Community conference, because it was all about the fact that actually the more we know from all the different ways people interpret Joe's method, the more likely we are to get success for our clients. And end of the day, that's what we're here for, right? To help people move better, to help people feel better. Um, and that's effectively what Joe did right from 
you know, those stories of him very early, mining the woods, watching animals, studying movement. I mean, in essence, that's what we're talking about here is movement philosophy. And the more we learn how to teach movement, the better we are, right? Absolutely, yeah. And that, that's the beauty of the APPI conferences, why we've loved going along to those, is, is you bring all these different teachers in from different backgrounds, different trading organisations, and you just experience so much more the, the way they deliver, the way they teach, just little tweaks in how exactly. they do an exercise. It, it all, as you say, just adds to a student's experience when you're teaching them. And as you say, it's about the movement and the better we move, the better we can live our lives. And my wife and I can both kind of testify to that because, you know, if we hadn't probably discovered Pilates, you know, saying where our lives would be now with our knees. So mm -hmm. we're really grateful. Absolutely. Yes, I agree. Great. All right. Well, let's, let's get to the, the sort of, crux of why I was so excited to, to speak with you in this way, Jonathan. And of course, we've had many conversations over the years, but I've never really had a pure chance like this to sit down and talk to you about your extreme knowledge of the history of Pilates. And for those of you that, that don't know, um, Jonathan has researched a lot into the history of Pilates um, and with the link to the Isle of Man, uh, it's, it's clearly... For me, I'm, I'm speaking for you slightly here, Jonathan, but every time we talk, I see this true passion and, and connection and honour to the, the basis of, of the link with Pilates and the Isle of Man. Um, but what I didn't realise that I've learned in the lead up to our conversation today is that it, it goes even deeper to that, to your great grandfather. So why don't you take us back to the, the start of your connection, familial connection, if you like, with Pilates and, and start to tell us about the story of, of that. Yeah, so it was not long after starting Pilates. I told my dad we were doing Pilates and um, Joseph Pilates was interned here on the Isle of Man during World War One, And he said to me, well, of course, you know, your great grandfather was interned here during World War One, And I possibly had been told that as a, a child, but I'd long forgotten that fact and it didn't mean much to me. So when he told me that, I started researching about the Nokalo internment camp. And it's quite amazing, really, just at that same time, because we started Pilates in 2013. And in 2014, a group of individuals on the island that lived right near to where the internment camp was, they realised that this was a long forgotten history of the Isle of Man that young people didn't know anything about it. They knew of people coming from Germany, researching their family history, were coming to the Isle of Man to find the camp and try and find out more about their family members that had been interned there for three or four years. And they realized they had to do something now before all this history was lost. So they, formed this charity which developed a building that was just off-site from the Nokalo internment camp. And their vision was to create a museum and do all the research and collate all that information so that subsequent generations would be able to learn about the Nokalo internment camp. So 
as I was researching my great grandfather uh, alongside what I was trying to do, this uh, group of individuals was also starting to collate the information. So it was quite easy for me to find out that my great grandfather had actually been interned in the same camp as Joseph Pilates. My father had thought he was in a different camp. There were two camps on the island. So that was quite exciting to find that link between my great grandfather, Jacob Grubb, and Joseph Pilates. And I was searching through newspaper archives at the Isle of Man Museum. They have some of the old camp newspapers. So the internees produced their own newspapers within the camp. And there was two references, one to Joseph Pilates, one to my great grandfather in the newspapers and both placed them in the same subcamp within Nokalo. So the camp was divided into four to contain the large group of males that were in there into separate sections. So it was exciting to find out that actually within the camp of 23,000 men, my great grandfather was in the sub camp of 7,000 men with Joseph Pilates. So over three and a half years as was probably every chance that seeing these same faces day in, day out, he would have, at least known who Joseph Pilates was and perhaps seen Joseph Pilates leading some guys in a group exercise class, if not joining in himself. Yeah. And yeah, from that, um, we went to a conference, Pilates conference in Joseph Pilates' hometown of Munchen Gladbach. And Kathy Corey from America, a Pilates teacher there, she was the organizer of this event. And she knew I was coming and asked me to do a 10 minute presentation for the opening address at that conference. So I started having to do a little bit more research, get some facts and figures together to do this presentation. And that was well received by everybody that was there. And they also mentioned a film that was just coming out about Joseph Pilates' life. And we got a copy of that on DVD. I was watching that and one of the Pilates teachers was interviewed and there's always this great debate as to whether there were metal beds at Nokalo camp and whether there were springs on them and whether Joseph Pilates could have possibly taken springs off a bed and used them to develop some sort of basic exercise equipment. Uh, the Americans were very much of the view there were no metal beds, no springs, therefore he couldn't have done this. So that kind of got me a little bit annoyed because I had seen photographs at Nokalo of metal hospital beds. Okay. So I started researching a little bit more about that. Um, a local doctor told me, of course, the hospital beds would be all metal um, because the the way of containing contagious infectious diseases spreading was in the hospitals. The Victorian method was everything was metal. So the straw mattresses could be just taken out, burnt, the metal beds doused in dis disinfectant um, to stop the spread of infection. So I kind of had that little bit of information that, yeah, these hospital beds that were metal would definitely have had the springs. And then Okay. Subsequently, I found an actual official government document listing the charges that would be made to internees for any damaged or missing equipment 
and amongst that was listed metal beds, iron frame with springs. So that was a kind of the clinching bit of information that kind of proved that fact. So I've oh, got I'm this. Glad, I'm glad that you are able to just prove that fact because when you started speaking just now, I was like, oh no, don't tell me I had this wrong all the time. My understanding was there were metal beds and there were springs and you know, there's many stories around the link to Joe at that time. So uh, at least, at least uh, we're, we're on the same page there. I got a bit worried when you started talking saying, what do you mean there were no metal beds? So sorry, yeah. keep going. Oh, there, well, there was plenty. There was about, I think, 250 um, looking at inventories when, when the camp closed and they sold off all the equipment. I think there was 250 beds and that ties in with the number of hospitals that were at the camp. There was, in each sub camp, there was a, a hospital. So that's four sub camps, four hospitals. And then an isolation hospital for anybody with TB or contagious diseases. So there were plenty of metal beds. Um, so it would be easy to take a spring or two off one or two of the beds without affecting its performance and, and maybe yeah. string those together to form some sort of apparatus to help bedridden patients. Um, so I, I, I formed a Facebook group to start sharing this information and put some stuff on there. Once I got 100 members, I thought, wow, that's great. I've done well there. And then then it grew to a 1,000 people in the group, and I was flabbergasted that I got that many. We're now up to 17,200 people in the group worldwide, just loving the information I'm sharing. So... Absolutely. And um, it's then amazing. Can, you, can you share with us the name of that group? Just because I'm sure people listening to this, you know, there's still many thousands out there that should be part of your, your group and, and sharing this information and recognizing the work you've done on gaining more insight into the history for us. Um, so do you want to share what the name of that group is? Yeah. So it's called Joseph's Legacy hyphen Pilates 100 plus. Uh, I was lost for a name to call it rapidly <laughs> just thinking well joseph's legacy that that fits in and when i formed the group it was 100 years after joseph Plates had left the isle of man so that's that's where the 100 plus comes in because it's 100 plus years and counting since joseph Plates left here and, and went on to further develop his method and obviously go to new york and open the studio there so it's, you know, really got to um, lockdown before I really got into the, the research about Joseph Pilates. I was trying to base it more about the Isle of Man, but there's very limited information because a lot of records were destroyed after the war. And there's not much to share about his time on the Isle of Man specifically. Uh, there's a lot about the camp and what life was like there. For anybody who's perhaps interested, the Nokalo Visitor Centre on the Isle of Man, their website is nokalo.im. It's a funny word. It's a, a mixture of Manx and, and the Norse Viking language, Nokalo. So it's spelled K-N-O-C-K-A-L-O-E, Nokalo. Okay. And I'll just give you a massive insight into the camp, the size of the camp, what life was like there. 
And so once I'd kind of researched as much as I could about the, the Isle of Man connection, during lockdown with a bit more time on my hands, I started to look in more at Joseph Plates and his life and time in America, just using old newspaper archives, etc. And my understanding when I started Pilates, my basic understanding of the history was Joseph Pilates arrived in New York, opened the studio, worked with some boxers, dancers got involved, come in to get rehabilitated from injuries. And gradually more and more dancers took up the method. And subsequently, from the 60s, some of Joseph's students started opening studios such as Corolla Trier, um, Romana Krizanowska taking over Joe's studio when Joe passed away and Clara passed away, Mary Bowen, Lolita San Miguel. So all these seemed to come in the 60s. And prior to that, there was there was pretty much just Joe. And his brother teaching, Joe's brother was in St. Louis, had a studio there. So when I started researching, I started finding out that there was a Pilates studio in 1941 in Denver, Colorado. There was a Pilates studio in Atlanta, Georgia. And I started thinking, well, who are these people? We've never heard any mention about these people in biographies or on the websites people write about the history there's no mention of this and gradually over time i've just been piecing together a whole section of the history that nobody really has, has shared before or known about before and this is what has really excited people because People have said that Joe died kind of quite despondent. He wanted the world to be doing his method and they weren't when he died. He, he seemed to be a bit sad and disappointed that more people weren't doing his method yet. My research kind of shows that all over America, people were teaching the method from Vancouver to Denver, Atlanta, I'm currently researching Houston Ballet, which has a rich tradition of, of Pilates teaching there. So it did spread quite widely over America through mainly the dancers. And a lot of those went to either Joe's studio or to Jacob's Pillow Dance Academy in Beckett, Massachusetts, where Ted Sean, a modern day American dancer, had opened a dance studio and Joe went to teach there for several summers and a lot of the dancers going to the dance studio for the summer were party to Joe's teaching. So it's really exciting. You know, I've got more information coming about a lot more dancers that were teaching the method. And, and what's really interesting is a couple of them, I've, I've contacted them and asked them about Pilates and, and they've said, I don't know what you mean. To them, it's contrology, what Joseph Pilates called his oh, method. Yeah, they they didn't even recognize the name Pilates. They're, they're quite old. They're in their 80s, and, and they were teaching and doing contrology back in sort of the, the 60s and 70s, and, and all they know is it's called contrology. Uh, in fact, one, one of the dancers, 
she still teaches dance. She still teaches a dance contrology class. She she told me she went to England. She's English born, but lives in in Dallas, Texas. She actually went to a daughter in law's um, Pilates classes on on the reformer and and didn't know what it was. She said that was not contrology. So it's hugely interesting how the dancers sort of that went to Joe, maybe at Jacob's Pillow or at his studio, but lived and worked in regional cities across America. They didn't have access to Joe's studio once they'd been and, and learned the method. Moving out to Houston, Oklahoma, Atlanta, wherever they were, they couldn't go to studios to go on the apparatus. All they could take is the mat work with them, and, and they taught mat work as part of the dancers' warm-up dance bar mat work classes. And that stuck with them for the rest of their lives, and they never got to go on the apparatus. So it's quite interesting, that aspect of, of the method as well. Yeah, it is. Well, my gosh, you certainly have done an enormous amount of research here, and you've just thrown a few little nuggets out there that are fascinating that I was not aware of as well. Can I take you you back? You mentioned Joe's brother. Um, tell us about what you've learned about him and his involvement, because it's not often spoken about. It's not, no. Um, Joe's brother, Fred, he went to America before Joe, so he moved down to St. Louis to live. Uh, he was apparently an engineer back in Germany. So actually he made a lot of the equipment and probably helped design it. So Joe had the ideas, but I believe Fred was more the, the hands-on technical side of it and, and making the equipment to start with. Uh, so he had his own studio as well down in St. Louis, taught the method um he was married he had i think three daughters one of his daughters was mary pilates who quite famously had been to joe's studio and learned the method um but fred kind of once i think joe had died it seems fred kind of stopped teaching he had a lot of equipment still at his apartment in the basement. A newspaper article said he, he had it there. If anybody wanted it and wanted to come and learn how to use it, he would give them the equipment as long as they wanted to learn how to use it properly. Uh, so, yeah, there's not, not as much known about Fred, really. Um, he seems to have kind of given up teaching, really. Once Joseph had passed away and perhaps there wasn't the market for it. And as he got older, he just lost interest in trying to teach it. Um, also, the Denver studio was Joseph's niece, uh, Jean Brady, her name was. So that was in 1941 that Jean had opened a studio down in Denver. So she had trained with Joseph Plates in New York. So it was was a family affair, and Joe had said in a newspaper article, I think in 1951, that he was going to hand over his studio to his niece, who was out in Denver. Unfortunately, 
his niece got divorced, had two young children to look after and could never fulfill Joe's hopes that she would take over his New York studio. But had she done that, perhaps things would be very different today. Yeah. Um, if we think back about the the lawsuit back in 1999, yeah. 2000, when somebody tried to trademark the name, uh, things could have been very different if Joe's niece had taken over running the studio. Yes. Oh, yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. It's uh, fascinating to think that it it could have been a little bit more of a sort of you know, family business, family legacy in a way. And as you say, it could be very different right now, right? Yeah, it could. And and I've spoken to uh, Joe's niece, her, her daughter, so Joe's grandniece. This was uh, on the sister, Joe's sister's side of the family. Uh, I've spoken to her several times and she sent me a couple of photos through of Joe and Clara, um, which nobody had seen before. These were personal family photos. So, you know, my research like my Pilates journey, which has been amazing, the, the research really that I've got into has, has been amazing as well and has taken me all over the world via emails, phone calls, and meeting and chatting with people from all walks of life that were either related to Joseph Pilates or Clara Pilates or were involved Many years ago, learned the method with Joe or family members. You know, it's just been lovely and a, such a delight just to be able to speak to these people that have got that connection back to Joseph Pilates and, and all pretty much from the comfort of my own home. I haven't had to travel America and try and visit these people. It's just amazing with the internet what I've been able to do just here from the Isle of Man. It is. It certainly is. It's an absolute uh, lesson speaking to you, Jonathan. It really is. Uh, can I can I ask you in terms of sort of following on the journey? We all know that sort of um, when Joe left the Isle of Man, he headed across to America. You've just highlighted there that his brother Fred was already there. Is there any like have you learned anything about? Is that why? They chose America. Were they given options? I mean, we've got a little bit of family history um, on on Elisa's side, um, where uh, she had uh, um, her her grandfather was interned in a prisoner of war camp as well, um, and they were put on a boat, but didn't know where they were going. They were either going to end up in America, South Africa, or Australia, and they happened to end up in Australia, and, and you know that's how that family began life there. But is there any information about? how or why they ended up there and what that part of the journey was like? Uh, we could only kind of surmise really as to, to why he went there. But, you know, yeah, Elisa's history, family history. Yeah, she, I remember her talking to me about it when she was here on the Isle of Man. And that's a fascinating story in itself as well. But for the German internees, there, there was obviously mass sort of poverty in Germany, unemployment. So one of the reasons I think a lot of Germans were already in England before World War One was, was for employment. My great-grandfather, he was a musician. He was playing in a band around seaside resorts in England with four of his brothers were in the band as well. So there's a lot of Germans in England at the time 
seeking employment. So I think Joseph Plates would have just been one of those many that came looking for employment. He was a circus performer. His great niece that I've previously just mentioned, she says he was a catcher in a trapeze act, which in itself is quite interesting because he was blind in one eye and people might think there's no way with one eye he could be a catcher, but kind of possibly my understanding of the the catcher is he's just got to be at a certain point at a certain time and it's up to the person flying through the air to be the one that reaches out to grab the person who's the catcher and I think he came to England and, and was a circus performer certainly when he was in Nokalo camp there's a poster that advertises an evening's entertainment and Joseph Pilates had a group of four people doing strength and balancing acts uh, in that evening's entertainment. Wow. So he was definitely of that ilk. And there was many Germans were performers within the music halls, circuses throughout Britain. And in fact, one of the newspaper articles from 1915 was actually uh, lamenting the fact that there was so few good acrobatic acts anymore in the theatres and music halls because they'd all been either interned or emigrated before the war broke out to America. So I think America just was the place to go. The streets were paved with gold, they were led to believe. And, mm -hmm. you know, there'd been years before that, a lot of migration from Germany to America. There was a lot of Germans already in America. Joseph Plati's uncle on his mother's side was a priest. He was already in America. His sister had gone there. His brother had gone there. So I think once he was released from Nokalo, so the, the war ended 1914, but Joseph Plati's wasn't released until March of 1915. My great-grandfather actually wasn't released until August of 1915, so several months after the end of the war, my great-grandfather was still interned in the camp. The reason for that was he'd applied to stay in England. He had a, an English-born wife, four English-born sons, so he wanted to stay in England, but it wasn't automatic. There's some instances where... German internees who had English wives were not allowed to return to England so their wives and families were actually sent back to Germany and a lot of them just were sent back to Germany they weren't allowed to stay in England so my great-grandfather he was fortunate to actually be able to return to his family so Joseph Plates went back to Germany he opened a boxing studio boxing was big in England and a lot of the Germans their first experience of boxing was actually at Nokalo camp in Germany boxing was illegal it was not not the done thing to do to box in Germany it was uncouth and uh, wasn't wasn't legal so once a lot of Germans had come to Nokalo and learned boxing they went back and boxing started to become popular but perhaps not popular enough. Joe Dome, the studio, which lasted, I think, a couple of years before it closed down. There was already in Germany this undercurrent of unrest after World War I, a lot of poverty. Uh, the German government were not allowed to have an army or an armed militia. 
but covertly they were starting to arm their police forces. So this is pre sort of military Gestapo police. Um, there were still secret police forces. And um, I think Joe realized that the way things were going in Germany, the political unrest, the way things were building up, that Germany was not the place to be. So he emigrated to Germany. Uh, sorry, he emigrated from Germany to America. Obviously, I think England would have been ruled out. He'd already been sent back from England to Germany. So I doubt he would have been able to come back to England. So really the only option to look to the future is America to try and find his fame and fortune there. Okay. So I think it was 1925, he paid his first, first visit to New York and then came back in 1926 to reside permanently in New York, subsequently opening his gym and going from strength to strength. Yeah. So tell us what we know about that. From my uh, understanding or what I was, was taught when I went through my Pilates training, was that the studio was on 8th Avenue in New York. Is that accurate? That's correct, yeah, 8th Avenue. Uh, I think it's 986 maybe, 8th Avenue. Uh, a building called the Van Dyke Building. So there was a lot of apartments. I think it was cheaper accommodation. There was a lot of artists, musicians lived there. Joe lived there and had his studio there. So he had a little apartment off the studio. That's where his, his first studio was. And he was there for many, many years. Further along the street was Stillman's gym, which a uh, great boxing gym. So no doubt that's where kind of Joe picked up a lot of early clients from the boxing community. On um, 7th uh, Avenue, not far away, was the studio of a guy called Sigmund Klein or Siegfried Klein. Sigmund Klein, I think it is. He, in the bodybuilding world, was a very famous bodybuilder, also German and slightly younger than Joseph Pilates. I've been told that Sigmund Klein knew Joseph Pilates. I'm still working on that kind of connection, but there were other gyms very close to, to Joe's studio. But Joe had a very different approach. I, I've seen Sigmund Klein's studio. He had a, a, a poster at the entrance to the studio, uh, studio saying suffer. Kind of it was no pay, no gain mentality, whereas Joseph yeah. Pilates was very much, you know, limit your repetitions, don't over fatigue and quite a different approach to the, the, the bodybuilders and the weightlifters. But yeah, there's that whole kind of community around there, Germans, bodybuilders, yeah, dancers, very close to New York Ballet Studio. So yeah. great community really for, for Joseph to be amongst to, to build up his client basis. And do, do we know or what do we know of the early years of that studio? Was When was the apparatus developed or put in there did it start just with his classical repertoire on the maths what do we know about how the studio began yeah the 
earliest I've seen um, reference to the universal reform, as he called it, is I think 1928. So from very early on, he had his apparatus there. His, his He registers his paint, paint, patent for the reformer in America, I think in 1926, 25, 26. He'd already registered it in Germany, I think. Uh, prior to that, so on his visit, first visit to America, I think he he registered it, and I've seen a newspaper article where a former boxer called Joe Fox had his own studio and he had a Universal Reformer, so he'd already bought one in 1928. So wow, okay, you no know, other people were getting these reformers and using them, so. Very early on, he had his apparatus in the studio. And, and from what I gather, that's all he taught at the studio was on the apparatus. He only ever seemed to teach the mat work at Jacob's Pillow Dance Academy, where he did group mat classes with the dance students. But what, what's interesting as well is my own understanding was he worked with boxers, wrestlers, very much male-orientated clientele to start with, but uh, from my research, um, I managed to get a pamphlet from 1928 in which several people wrote their testimonials about Joseph Pilates. Uh, this came from a first-generation teacher called Anna Schaffer, who is still alive in her 80s, still teaches Pilates bar classes. Uh, she was with Joe, probably one of the longest continuous students with Joe. She was there from... I think 1951 through to his death in 1967, regularly going to Joe's studio. So she knew him well. So this pamphlet, I looked at all the people who had written testimonials and pretty much most of them were females and most of them were actually dancers. So from very early on, the dancers were involved with the method and had found Joe and, and were starting to learn the method early on. I had assumed they came later in the 40s, 50s, 60s that the dancers took hold of the method. But yeah, from, from what I've found, dancers from very, very early on were going to Joe and raving about it. So yeah, it's no, no wonder within the dance world now, Pilates is so popular. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, that is sort of one of those famous parts of, of the histories about how Joe first came to be working with certainly dancers, but more specifically, I guess, he's linked to the New York City Ballet. What what do you know about that and how that I've heard so many different stories from conversations in a bar to, you know, all sorts of, of things. How did it develop that you've learned from your research? I haven't really found out anything specific again because there's so many stories going around and yeah, it's, it's hard to pinpoint down exactly how the dancers got involved, who started going there first, but undoubtedly the Van Dyke studios where he had this studio, oh, yeah. as I've said, quite cheap accommodation. There were musicians, artists, there. probably some of them were, dancers as well because New York Ballet was very close by so they would be aware of him 
there's lots of artists were already going to him, dancers from that pamphlet in 1928. So just just how on who was the first to go there and say, hey, this guy's is amazing. If you've got a dance injury, go to Joe. Uh, yeah, it's it's one of those things you probably never pinpoint down. But yeah. word, it's, you know, word of mouth in, in a community is probably the best advert on the Isle yeah. of Man. That's the best advert for my classes, word of mouth. Yeah. And and probably word of mouth with Joe was, yeah. was probably the best. The dancers talking with one another once one had been, that was it. They all started going. And, and also where the, the name Pilates comes from rather than Contrology, which yeah, Joe... It was going to be one of the questions that I was going to get to with you. Say, so do we know anything about when it changed from Contrology to Pilates or how that came about? No, and, and just my recent research when I've contacted uh, these two dancers or one former dancer, one still, still dancing and teaching where they didn't know what Pilates was. They thought I was talking about something different. Um, so one story is that um, in the 60s, I think it was, that people, dancers that were injured, started talking to one another and saying, have you been to Pilates? As in, have you been to Joseph Pilates to get some rehab at his studio. So the term Pilates was kind of referenced to him, but gradually over time, they started calling the method Pilates because have you been to Pilates as in not the man, but the method. Um, so it's probably something along those lines, whether it's have you been to Pilates as in Mr. Pilates or have you been to Pilates studio, which he called it Pilates Studio. He called his method Contrology, but the sign outside his door was Pilates Studio. So it's probably more, have you been to Pilates Studio rather than that contracting it down to, have you been yeah. to Pilates? So yeah. that probably 70s, 80s, I think. It, it's okay. something I've kind of earmarked myself to kind of try and pinpoint down a period of time when that started happening. But again, it's probably one of those things that we'll never quite know, but I would say probably from, from the seventies, late seventies, early eighties, it was probably over that period that people started referring to Pilates rather than Contrology. Yeah. Okay. Well, that seems to, seems to have some good foundation in it. It makes sense. Doesn't it? When you think of it like that. Yeah. Yeah, um, definitely. Let me let me ask you then about that sort of, you know, early time in the in the studio, the sort of first 10, 15 years of that studio on 8th Avenue. Do we know much about that? Um, did Clara actually work in the studio as well? Did anyone else, who, who else was, was in there with them? Yeah, there's been many assistants from, from what I gather from, from others who have referred to assistants sort of in the... the 60s 50s and then from what i've i've found out from previous uh, or from our research previous earlier years there was other assistants and um, one i found called bertha fried she advertised herself as a, a former assistant to joseph pilates 
nobody knew about her. I managed to contact a granddaughter who again sent me photos, told me all about her. So there were other assistants, definitely. And I think that was the way you learned. You you were an assistant and then you learned there was no certification course as such in, in the early days. And quite a lot of people were assistants there. Um, Anna Schaffer, who was there, she remembers Clara teaching very much so. A lot of people think Clara was the better teacher, <laughs> more kind of uh, soft with her approach, Joe, very harsh, just barked out a few orders and and that was it, whereas Clara was a little bit more hands-on, a little softer in her teaching technique. So Clara definitely taught there. Uh, a lady called Hannah, um, I can't think of a surname offhand, she was there smirk over i think yeah she was there for a long time teaching so he, he had a lot of assistants over the years nadja cory was one of them she was one of his most favored students she went on to open a Pilates studio in a department store called bendel's she was uh, asked by joe to take that over so that was just a an additional studio that Joe had at a department store. Um, again, not a lot was known about Nadja Corey. That was her sort of dance name, uh, Dolores Corey, her real name was. I again managed to contact her daughter who had been reluctant over the years to share any information about her mother. And she was happy to send me all sorts, Nadja's CV, photographs, I've shared this all in my group and that was just, yeah, so lovely to be able to, again, get more information about somebody that had been long forgotten about and, and little known about. So there were many assistants there over time. Some went on to open their own studios. Bob Seed was one famously that had opened his studio and by all accounts, Joe wasn't too pleased and went over with a gun to kind of sort him out, but that's maybe just hearsay again. I was, I was, I was going to ask you some of these stories because there are many stories, aren't there, around the, you know, this, the he, he, students or assistants and then, you know, when they went on to open their own studios, whether that was with Joe's blessing or not. Um, what, what do we know about that element of the history where people started opening other studios and were they calling them Pilates studios or Contrology studios? And do we know if, if it was part of it or not? Anything that you found in your research on that side? Yeah, they, they were opening studios, uh, some very much with Joe's blessing. Um, Corolla Tria opened a studio. I'm not sure what she called her studio. Anna Schaffer that I've spoken to opened a studio, started teaching with Joe's blessing. She said she did get a letter off Joe with his blessing, allowing her to teach. Others perhaps maybe out of courtesy, you know, hadn't asked and went off and just opened a studio. Maybe that didn't uh, go down well with Joe, especially if it was on his turf. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Probably that... Uh, 
issue of, of if you're open a studio on somebody's doorstep then yeah that's not the done thing yeah so yeah again and do they have apparatus in there and were they buying it off joe do we know anything about that yeah well i know corolla tree uh, she had plans the for the equipment so she either bought stuff off joe or had her own stuff made I know Nadja Corey had her own apparatus made, but again, probably had the plans, the the the, the drawings, etc. From Joe, I know you know Alan Herdman. We've not even gone on to British yeah. history, but Alan Herdman, when he had gone to Corolla Studio and learned with one of her teachers, Robert Fitzgerald, when Alan came back, he had the plans that Corolla had for her equipment which again had come from from Joe. So Alan had equipment made here in Britain um, at the Contemporary Dance Studio in London. He, he had the, the theatre technicians and craftsmen just build it from the plans using whatever they could find, scaffolding, lumps of wood, whatever, to make the equipment. So, um, wow. yeah, it, it all kind of stems from Joe and, and they had their own apparatus within the studios definitely gosh well look um i am conscious i i think you know we might be uh moving towards a, a series of discussions with yourself jonathan because your depth of knowledge is fascinating um for for this part because i am conscious of your time as well sir um one thing i really wanted to to ask is what we know about joe's death and his passing because there's many stories around how he died, where he died, what was happening around there. What is it from your research that you've learned around that that phase? Again, that's something I've not looked deeply into. Others have, you know, we've got three, four biographies now. John Steele, a close friend of Joseph Pilates, brought out his book, Caged Lion. So mm -hmm. I don't want to kind of go over old ground that others have covered, but it's it's kind of clear that the myth of him dying in the fire was, was not true or that he contracted lung disease from inhaling the smoke doesn't is not true. There were fires at, at the Van Dyke Studios where he lived, but a significant time before Joe passed away. He smoked cigars, heavy cigar smoker. Um, yeah, so... I think it was emphysema, I think, that what yeah, he had in the end. Yeah. So he ended up in hospital, and I'm sure the smoking didn't help that. And, yeah. you know, he was a good age, you know. He was, yeah. In his yeah. 80s, so it's not like he died yeah. a young man. He, he'd lived a good life, good age. Yeah. He smoked, he drank. He wasn't uh, perfect in any way. He wasn't a health freak. So yeah, yeah, he, yeah. he, he lived okay. his life. He liked his drink. He liked his smoking, and and probably that's it's probably the cigar smoking that we got to him in the end. Yeah. Okay. So the you know running back in to save the neighbor's cat story maybe uh, isn't isn't quite all it's made out to be. No, no. And yeah. you know there is a lot of myth and legends around him, and I think some of those come from other people. Some of the stories Joe told, people said that's just a far-fetched story. But actually, you look into it and and there is an element of truth. Maybe he stretched it a bit like a fisherman's story, you know, 
as we all do sometimes. Yeah. Um, you know, when he left Germany, apparently people say he he had a fight with two police officers, Gestapo police, and well, that couldn't be true because Gestapo didn't exist until 1933. Right. But actually looking at the history of the Gestapo and where they came from and all the secret police organisations that existed in the 20s, then secret police existed, so they weren't called Gestapo, but they were the forerunners of Gestapo, and yeah. Okay, got the stories could could be basically based yeah. on truth. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and and let me ask you this then. I, I think Jonathan to sort of um finish off our our chat today, um, because you've been very generous with your time here. Um, what do we know about the plans for the studio when he was no longer able to to teach in the studio? Um, was it was there a, a line of succession? Was it handed over to Clara? What do we know about that phase? Yeah, so I mentioned early on about his niece on his sister's mm. side of the family that he had earmarked his niece and her husband as the people that were going to take over his studio in the 50s. Joe's intention was to open a training command, uh, a training school, I think in Beckett, Massachusetts, where he had a little summer cottage he wanted to open a studio there to train teachers and and his plan i think was to allow his niece and her husband to take over running the new york studio he was going to go off and do this training and teach teachers to teach his method that kind of concept never happened and joe's niece as i say got divorced and couldn't take over running the studio so when Joe passed away, it was kind of left to Clara to kind of carry on trying to run the studio. There was a number of students, John Steele, who was a friend of Joseph Plates and, and wrote the book Caged Lion that many people may have read. He was one of a group who kind of supported Clara and tried to keep the studio running. Financially, it wasn't kind of working, so they kind of looked to try and find others to run the studio. I have been told by Clara's niece, who is 95, and I, again, another person I've been in regular contact with over the last few years, um, Irene Zalonka, her name is, and Irene's daughter, Nancy. They've told me quite a few little bits about Joe and Clara. So they've said that, uh, Irene's other daughter, one of her other daughters, was a dancer and went to the studio. And Clara wanted this niece to take over running the studio, but she didn't want to. So, again, that's not common knowledge. Um, so, in the end, they got Romana Krizanowska, a former student of Joe's former dancer to come and take over running the studio. From there, she sold the business to somebody else and it ended up with a certain person called Sean Gallagher, who yeah. then wanted to try and register the, the name Pilates. And he sent seats and desist letters out to every Pilates student and every Pilates equipment manufacturer saying they couldn't use the name. So then there was that 
big lawsuit and it was found to be a generic term pilates so everybody could use it and yeah so he kind of had the the rights to the studio and the equipment in it and couldn't use the name exclusively though thankfully for everybody else around the world yes yes very much well well look i think what we what we might do is um leave on that sort of cliffhanger there shall we say because that is a a vital part of the story and we haven't even got on to the uk history of pilates and and how it came over here as well which i'd be fascinated to talk to you more about um yeah that's that's a super interesting you know piece of the history as well especially for us in england and i haven't even got around to sharing that in my group yet because i've had so much other stuff to share yeah, and we got the the lovely event we had here in 2019 to celebrate the opening of the Nokalo Visitor Centre, in which it was great to have Elisa come over and and join us as one of the guest teachers on the island. So that was a fantastic event. So it'd be great to talk about that as well a little bit more. Yeah, I would very much like to. It, it is actually one of the proudest moments Elisa talks about um, in her career, to be honest, the invitation to come over and be part of such a special event. Um, and, you know, yourself and all the people organising that were, were so kind and generous to everyone that was there. So I would I would very much like if uh, if we could get you back on and we'll do another uh, a version where we talk more about the, the British history of this as well. Um, but I must say, I it's been an absolute honour and a privilege to speak to somebody as learned as you. Um, and I, I look forward to many more conversations. You're too kind, but yeah, uh, you know, I'm just pleased to be finding this info and sharing it with everybody. You know, I don't do it for profit or gain. It's just for the love of it. And yeah. just to share what I know about the history. Very much so. Well, look, the the other thing that, you know, and, and you should be, um, uh, what's the right the right word well you you should be very proud of what you're doing and you should be very much respected by us in the community because you're bringing an element of knowledge that i think is is very unique and very important to to try and really understand correctly what his life was and 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 how it transpired to be you know this thing that we all live our lives off right now i think very often today we can be so into ourselves and not necessarily thinking about the fact that all of us in this industry are doing it on the back of somebody else who was innovative enough to create this in the first place. Yeah, yeah. And and in terms of the history as well, you know, maybe next time we'll touch on the latest lawsuit that's going on in America where somebody is claiming copyright to a lot of the photographs of Joseph Pilates and preventing people sharing these photographs and having their Instagram, Facebook accounts taken down. So yeah, um, what I've been doing has is, is just been for the benefit of the whole community. And there is this conflict going on in America, a lawsuit at the moment. So hopefully that might be resolved by the time we next speak. Or if not, okay. I'll be able to kind of touch on that and what's happening there. So yeah, yeah very great much. to speak well, again. It would be. It would be. Tell me, Jonathan, where can people connect with you more? Obviously, there's the Facebook group. Yeah, there's my Facebook group, Joseph Pilates hyphen, uh, sorry, Joseph's Legacy hyphen Pilates 100 plus. My own business website is renewpilatesiom.com. 
jgrubatlive.com. And I can be emailed at jgrubatlive.com. Okay, great. And social media, are you on social media at all? People follow you there or is it the Facebook group that is is the best place to follow you? Uh, I'm personally on Facebook, Jonathan Grubb, yeah. But I don't post too much on there, but if people (laughs) want to befriend me and send me a message through Facebook, that's great. By all means, join the the Pilates group where the history is because there's so much... You scroll back, there's there's years worth of information in there and there's more to come. So yeah, yeah. you should encourage be encouraged to join. Absolutely. And we will do that as as well. And I think um, you know, we'll look to put a few links um to that group on on our website and other things we do because it should be very much supported. Um, I think what you're doing is brilliant. Um and you're a, a super human, I've got to say, oh, Jonathan. I really enjoy your company and I love your passion for for this industry and this history and you're such a, a nice person along with it so thank you very much on behalf of us here at appi and i guess if i'm speaking for the wider pilates 101 community um huge respect to you and a huge thank you for the work that you're doing thank you all right well guys um i'm sure that's been a fascinating conversation for you all to listen to um We'll come back with Jonathan another time. I'm sure we'll get lots of queries and questions coming through as well. So um, if it's okay, we'll pass some of those on to you, Jonathan. But uh, for now, um, may I just say a, a huge thank you for your time today. You're welcome.